0: 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4. As we are moving through the historical account of Israel's history of the kings, we cannot forget that the writer of this book is trying to communicate an important truth to a specific group of people, the exiles who are in Babylon. And his truth that he's trying to communicate to them is that God was faithful despite Israel's unfaithfulness, that God's character never changed, and that He kept all of His promises. And one of the ways that the writer teaches this truth is by examining another character. He's he's going to examine the character of the prophet Elijah, because Despite Israel's wayward king and and wayward spiritual leaders, God is continuing to work in the lives of His people, meeting their needs through Elisha, who is being faithful to the Lord. And as we're going to see this evening, He does it, and just for everyday people, He does supernatural things. So, chapter 4, beginning in verse 18… It starts off with the phrase, now, when the child was grown. So we, we need to get some context here. Remember earlier in chapter 4, Elisha formed a friendship with a couple who had no children, and Elisha was so touched by the wife's kindness that he wanted to do something for her. And what he ended up giving her was a promise from God of a son, which despite her unbelief, that she said, don't play games with me. Despite her unbelief, it happened a year later. And man, could you imagine the joy that she experienced a year later? Beyond hope, she had a son, beyond human possibility. She was barren. She had a son. But as we see and we'll see in just a moment, years of joy and hope rekindled, are suddenly shattered when tragedy strikes. And now she needs to deal with that pain of loss all over again. It says here in verse 18, and when the child was grown, the word indicates a child anywhere from four years old to a preteen. Very likely it's on the lower end of things because it's going to mention in a bit she just had him on her knees. So he was probably still fairly young four, five, six, seven. It says, when he was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he, the father, said to a lad, carry him to his mother. I don't know what caused the headache. Heat exhaustion often reveals itself in the form of a severe headache. Usually that only uh, is really dangerous for the elderly or people with high blood pressure that, that the body doesn't handle that well. So his father probably figured, he's, he's the kid, just needs to get out of the heat, you know, and you know, he has, has a teenager, a young man, carry him home. Uh, but note here in verse 20, it says, and when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, and then he died. Now, I'm going to be very frank with you. This chapter hits a little bit too close to home uh, for me. When I read it, it reminds me of how easy it is to talk about certain subjects until you or those you love experience the pain of loss. This is a heart-wrenching gut-wrenching tragedy every single person involved in this account woke up that day expecting everything would be fine and and now in a matter of just a few hours this boy is gone even in the midst of his symptoms i'm sure no one thought it would take a turn like this but it did and you know the reason this hits too clo- too close to me right now is because i've received way too many phone calls or emails over the last year where someone i know is just gone they're just gone. Some of you will know some of the names I mentioned here. You remember, you know, Janet. You remember Addie. Uh, I just lost a, a pastor friend of mine who went to be with the Lord just two weeks ago. He was a dear friend of mine in and, and seemingly fine health, and he's just, he's just gone. Life is precious. and Tomorrow is promised to no one. After the events of the last year, I can honestly say I hugged my kids just a bit longer. I ask the extra question in a conversation with someone at church these days because I don't know if I ever see that person again this side of heaven. Sleep, hobbies, politics, social media, even work goals or life dreams have become of far less value to me than the people around me in the last year. If there's a lesson to share from that, it's it's quite simple. Don't waste your time on the self-life. Because we were not created to live for ourselves. There'll be many things that you'll invest into and that will be the self-life that you will regret if you do so. But I can promise you this, you'll never regret life and time invested into other people. Well, what is a mother to do when her child is gone suddenly? Well, she takes her problem to the one who promised her the child in the first place. Look at verse 21 she went up, and she laid him on the bed of the man of God, and then shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, "'Send me, I pray you, one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back.' And he, her husband, said, "'Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath.' And she said, "'It shall be well.'" She does something odd here. She conceals her son's death from everyone in the house, including her husband. Verse 22 explains why. It's because she plans to go and come back with Elisha. So she conceals his death. She leaves him in Elisha's room on his bed. And then she says to her husband, send me, which is please release to me. uh, One of the young men, uh, same word as lad that carried the boy back, one of the teens who worked for them. Remember, they're an important family in their community, They're probably wealthy. 71 of the young teens uh, to help me go, and then also one of the donkeys that I might run or hurry to the man of God and then come back. And he's confused because he's like, why would you go see Elisha today? I mean, it's, a, it's not a new moon feast. It's not a Sabbath feast. The, the Sabbath and, and new moon festivals were observed by, by a work stoppage. And so, because people weren't working, they could travel to celebrate uh, Shabbat with a friend, uh, to celebrate the new moon festival with a friend. Offerings oftentimes during those holidays would be brought to the Lord, and because the Levites and the priests were no longer doing their jobs to to receive these offerings, the people often would bring them to the prophets. Now, I wish we knew more about this couple. I wish we knew more about their spiritual state. The Bible really doesn't give us much about those things. For example, did she normally go make trips like this? Did she normally go, hey, I'm going to the prophet's house for Shabbat? Like, that seems weird to me because normally people traveled as a family back then. So I don't know. Did she normally go alone to bring offerings to the Lord at festivals? Or did her husband ask her this because the only time that they saw Elijah is when he came to them, and he's confused why you would want to go see him now. Is it a special festival? Like what? There's no festival I know of going on. I don't know, but whatever the reason is, he perceives something's odd, something's up, which again means she didn't tell her husband that her, his son was dead. Which again, it does make me wonder about his spiritual condition would he think it a waste of time to go to Elisha? Did she want to spare him the grief he would experience because she believed it was unnecessary? Is her motive fear or faith or neither? I don't know. She never explains why she does it. She simply, when he asks more questions and he pries, she goes, King James says, it shall be well, but it's all one word in the Hebrew, and it's shalom. Now, us ignorant plebeians, we don't know all the nuance of that word. We think of shalom, it means high, it means peace, it means things are good, and it can mean that. There's a lot of debate on what she meant by this because shalom can mean all is good, but is all good right now? All is not good, and we're gonna see in a moment she's not like this great person of faith that's like everything's fine. But shalom was also a response used by someone when you wanted to pacify an inquirer because you didn't want to give them a definitive answer. Like if they were coming at you and they're like, hey, well, what's going on? What's going on? And you'd be like, nothing, don't worry about it. Like, No, I want to know. They'd be like, shalom. Which basically meant everything's fine. Just keep your nose out of this business. Which is what most commentators believe she's doing here. What's going on? Why are you going to see the man of God? You don't need to know. Now, one thing I do need to mention real quickly, is that the Bible doesn't give us this part of their story because she's an example of what we should follow here. It's simply telling us what she did. You know, there are many things in the Scripture when we see someone doing something that doesn't mean we should do likewise. Spouses shouldn't keep things from each other, especially something as serious as this. But remember, this is the same woman who wouldn't take no for an answer when she invited Elijah over for a meal. And everything else that I read about here about her is she's a pretty tough cookie. So even though she says, shalom, mind your own business, her husband grants her request, even though he can't get her to tell him why. Verse 24, so then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive, which means lead the way, get going, and go forward, slack not, don't hold back or restrain your riding for me, unless I tell you we're going to make a a fast pace, we're going to get to Mount Carmel. So verse 25 says, she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is about just under 20 miles away from Shunem. She's a a Shunemite. Mount Carmel is where probably one of the school of prophets was. When Elijah kind of made the rounds after Elijah was taken up in the the whirlwind. When that happened, he went and stopped at all the schools, and his last stop was Mount Carmel. So it's likely there was a school there, and he must have recently told a couple that he would be there for a bit. Now, some interesting facts here. The average speed of a donkey is 3.5 miles per hour. The average walking speed for a human being is 3 miles per hour. So you're not that far behind a donkey. Now, that means if they were moving briskly, most of the way that this is about a five-hour trip, which means it would still be daytime since the boy died around noon. It would still be daylight when she arrived, which is why Elijah sees her coming. It says, And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to Gehazi, And if you go to Israel with us from Mount Carmel, you see you can see everything from there. So he would see her coming. She said to Gehazi, servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray you, to meet her and say unto her, is it, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? Maybe Elisha couldn't leave what he was doing. Maybe he wanted to know if her visit required his immediate attention. I don't know why he sends Gehazi and why he tells him to run. Maybe he's concerned because why would she be here if things weren't well? But she answers and says the same thing to Gehazi that she said to her husband, Shalom, All was not good, but she's not going to share that until she's face-to-face with Elijah, verse 27. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. Literally, the word caught there means to fasten yourself or to fasten something, one object to another. It means to firmly grasp. She had been holding it all in for hours, and all the grief and disappointment came welling up the moment she reaches Elijah. She falls at his feet, and she grabs his legs in such a way that she has no intentions of letting go. This upsets Gehazi. It says, but Gehazi came near to thrust her away, and it's just as hard. The word is just as harsh as it sounds. It means to shove, to push, to bump. It's not a gentle or a kind word. Interesting, when we read the New Testament, the disciples had this attitude towards some of those who approached Jesus. Don't touch the teacher. This is improper. That's undignified. I don't know why Gehazi did it. Maybe he was jealous that she didn't bring up her grief with him. Maybe Gehazi is just not a nice guy. That's the impression I get of him. But whatever the reason, Elijah steps in. He says, let her alone. The man of God said, let her alone, which means stop, desist, let her go. For her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord has hid it from me, and he has not told me. The word vexed, it means to have a feeling or attitude of great anguish. It's more than just suffering. It's absolute inner turmoil to the point where you just don't even know what, where to go from here. Absolute anguish. She had bottled this up for hours. But all the past hopelessness and bitterness of her barrenness roiled inside of her now combining with this disappointed new hope and grief and this kind of pain. It's just, you can almost taste it or feel it coming off her as she falls at his feet. Now, note that Elisha saw it, but Gehazi did not. Or rather, I should say, Elijah chose to see it and Gehazi chose not to see it. Just a word of advice. Don't be Gehazi when someone comes to you in anguish. Elijah acknowledges here, I don't know what's happened. The Lord has hid it from me. He hasn't told me. He knows something awful has happened, something he feels like God would normally have told him about, which is, I don't know, have you ever found yourself in that moment when someone comes to you with horrible situation and you just go, I don't even know what to say? That's okay, it's okay. In fact, when God hasn't spoken to you, it's best to remain quiet and wait. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do is just weep with the person who's weeping. You don't need to say anything in that moment. But sometimes we're uncomfortable, we're awkward, we think, well, I should say something. When someone is this broken, this hurting, the situation needs to be handled gently and with a lot of patience. Now, I guess she assumed Elijah knew because when he goes, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Well, then she finally speaks up. Look at verse 28. Then she said, after he said what he said, then she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Did I ever make a request to you for anything, a son? Did I ever ask you for a son? Did I ever say, fix my barrenness? Did I not say, do not deceive me? The word deceive here is an interesting word. It means to lull or soothe or comfort. In other words, she had had her guard up. She had had her walls up. She had made it so that she was okay with this. I've learned to deal with my barrenness. I've got all my walls in place. I didn't need you to help me. Tonight I ask you not to do this to me. This woman is extremely relatable because I know I've done this before and I, I'm sure many of you have that we can get to a place with our disappointment where we harden our heart to the pain and we just learn to live with it. You know, you just learn to live with it. Where we no longer allow ourselves to feel anything about the situation. Well, this is where the woman had, had been with her barrenness when Elisha came into her life. She had learned to be content with everything else in her life except this one area. This one area was too painful. And rather than be content, she said, I'm just going to build a wall. I'm just going to put my guard up and that I'll never, ever have to experience the pain. So instead of giving that pain to the Lord, she'd simply come to terms with it. Well, when Elijah promised her she'd have a child, she refused to let him wreck that wall down. She said, don't play games with me. She kept that wall that she had erected in her heart up, but then the child came, wonder of wonders. The son came, and he shattered the wall. And now for the last five hours, she's been trying to re-erect it again, but she can't. It's almost like she asked him, didn't I tell you not to cause me this pain again? I was fine the way I was. But you promise fulfilled, made me let my guard down. Maybe God did hear all those prayers. Maybe God does care. So now all this anguish, he says, has flooded my heart once again, even worse. One commentator said this, he said, there's a sense in which he says it is, it's better never to have a child than to have one and lose the child. Therefore, this is your fault, Elijah. You need to fix this because I can't fix myself right now. I love the Bible because we're complex things, aren't we? Like, it's, it's, like you, you read here, and there's, there's faith because she's believing that he, something can be done even after death, right? Like, she's here. She's with him. You need to fix this. But there's also unbelief because it's never better to have not had a child than to have one and lose them, no matter how painful it might be to us. Real life, it's not cut and dried, is it? It's not. You know, you read the story, Charles Spurgeon's mom praying, Lord, rescue my children so they don't, I don't have to testify against them someday in the day of judgment. And you think, man, that's a hardcore mom. But then you read other times about how she worried about her kids. She was worried about little Charles because he had a head full of steam in so many other directions besides the Lord. We're complex. You know, some of us deal with hard things better than others, and sometimes, oddly enough, faith is mingled side by side with unbelief, just like this woman. We handle it well in some ways, and in other ways, not at all. I think God puts accounts like this in the Scriptures so that we can see we're not alone in our struggles, to understand that life is just flat out hard sometimes, and that the truth is we can never tackle it on our own. You see, this woman had tackled all her past pain alone, but none of us has the capacity to truly fix things ourselves. Our efforts are really just a, an inadequate band-aid unless we give it to the Lord and let Him help us. And so, before we move on to Elijah's response, is there a band-aid you've put on that you need to take off? You know, is there a, a wound you need to expose to the Lord? Is there a deep wound you need to bring to the Lord so He can heal it? Here's the beautiful part. You can fall at his feet with all that pain and he won't shove you away. You can just bring all the gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching stuff and just bring it right to his feet and grab on him and go, I just don't even know where else to go. I don't have any answers. I don't know what to do. And I don't know how I can move forward with everything I'm feeling right now. You can grab hold of him. He's not going to look at you and go, undignified, dignified, how dare you? He's not going to shove you away. Can't you handle anything? The Bible says the Lord pities us like a father pities his child. He knows our frame that we're simply dust. You can even bring your accusations to him like she does. He can handle them. Now, He'll lovingly correct you so you can receive His embrace once more because He's never done anything wrong. But He can handle, he can handle our unbelief. Well, Elijah doesn't know if the child is injured or sick or, or worse because she doesn't, she doesn't say it to him either. She doesn't say shalom to him, but she doesn't give him the details. And yet his heart is moved by her anguished honesty, and he he wastes no time sending Gehazi to help. Verse 29. Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand. Go your way. If you meet any man, don't salute him. If any salute you, don't answer him back. And then when you get there, he says, Lay my staff upon the face of the child. Gird up means put your belt on, son. You're going running. You need to get there as quickly as possible and bring my staff with you. And when you get there, put it on on his face. Why do that? That's kind of a weird thing to do. Like, I've never done that when my kids were sick. Well, it's not because his staff was magical, or it's not because he could put God's power into it and send it off on a mission. Remember, his staff was a symbol of his prophetic office. And so, Elijah, remember, he doesn't know that the kid is dead. He's expecting the family to be gathered around, maybe a sick child or an injured child, and and this staff would be that sign of authority that would give Gehazi access to the boy. He'd give Gehazi a kind of authority to, to take charge of the situation. Don't talk to anybody. Don't, don't answer if they try to, you know, say something to you. We don't know how bad things are. Just get there as quickly as possible and lay it on his face. Touch his, touch his face with it. Moses used his staff when performing miracles, and Perhaps Elijah hoped this would have a similar effect, that it would maybe heal the boy, again, not because the staff contained power, but because he was God's prophet and the staff represented his office. But note verse 30, this is not Elijah's plan is not enough for the mom. It says, And the mother, of the child said, "As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you." <laughs> Remember, that's the strongest oath and the strongest oath an Israeli can make. She says, you can send your servant and your staff, but you're the one that got me into this mess, and if you expect me to go home with him, you're fooling. You're coming. If I'm going home, it's because you're coming with me. Again, I don't know if this is frustration or unbelief or faith or a, a mixture of all those speaking. Perhaps she's just adamant because she knows what Elijah does not, and that is that her son is gone. Now, her words here are not fair to Elisha. He doesn't know. But would knowing the facts change the situation? I've, I've seen people who will argue over all the details of something when it just doesn't matter anymore. Now, I can say that critically because that's me sometimes. That's me, my old me, a lot of times. The truth is, whatever the problem, God's the one who's going to have to do something. And there's nothing Elisha can do about that. But there is a hurting person in front of him. And that is something that Elijah can do something about. And so, Elisha decides to go with her. But note, verse 31 says, Ge- Gehazi gets there first. It says, and Gehazi passed on before them, and he laid the staff upon the face of the child. He touched the face, but there was neither voice nor hearing, no sound came up from the child, no alertness is what the word hearing means, no effect. Wherefore, he went again, he turned back to meet him, Elisha, on the way and told him, saying, the child is not awaked. Elisha's first plan fails. I've heard all sorts of, read all sorts of commentary shenanigans about how Elisha knew this would happen. Listen, Elisha's already admitted that God hasn't spoken to him about this, that this is all, all brand new news to him. Prophets aren't infallible. I understand when they speak and say, thus saith the Lord, you can't have a failure. But just as people, they're not infallible in the Bible. God doesn't tell them everything, and sometimes their attempts in just regular life situations don't work. And so if prophets like Nathan and Elijah can make mistakes, remember Nathan, David said, I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan says, ah, do all that's in your heart. David's a great idea. Nathan's walking out and the Lord's like, <clears throat> you spoke too quickly. That, why didn't you talk to me about this? And then he has to go back and inform David, you can't build the Lord a house. If prophets like Nathan and Elijah, great men of God, can make mistakes, then all of us should remain humble, no matter what God's call on our life is. I think all of us can be open to critique. All of us can be open to correction, no matter where it's coming from. Well, the mother still doesn't speak up. She still doesn't explain the situation. She wants Elijah to see it with with his own eyes, verse 32. When Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his dead. Now Elijah sees. And the word behold means it, it, it's kind of it was a shock. He was not expecting this. There's the dead child, and he's just laying on his bed, a bed the woman had made for him out of her kindness to him. What's Elijah supposed to do? Well, it would have been very easy in that moment to say, I tried. I sent Gehazi. staff's not going to work better in my hand than his. There's nothing more I can do. But instead, Elijah doesn't shy away from the reality of what just happened, and he doesn't leave the mother with her grief and accusations. He goes inside. Verse 33, therefore he went in and shut the door upon them twain, behind the two of them. She stays outside, but Gehazi comes in, and he shuts the door. then he prayed unto the Lord. This word for prayer is different than the normal just communication with God. It refers to the idea of intercession. It refers to the idea of begging God for an answer. Elisha flat out doesn't know what to do because God hasn't spoken to him. And so because he doesn't know what to do, he goes to the one who does know what to do in every situation. We don't see God's answer. But God must have told him something because Elisha does something very similar to what Elijah did in a, in a similar situation. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 20 through 22, when the, the woman, the widow he was staying with, when her child died, he went in, brought him up into the room, and went in, and, and he laid on him. He did something a little different. It's not exactly the same. And he did that, I think, multiple times before the child revived. Well, here in verse 34, it says that he, Elijah, went up, climbed up onto the bed. That's what that means, went up, and then he lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands, and he stretched himself upon the child. Now, this is a different word, stretched, than the one that was used when, when Elijah did this, so it is a little different. The only other time this word for stretched is used, it means to crouch or bend down. The only time it's used is when Elijah, it says, he put his face between his knees when he was praying on Mount Carmel for God to send fire and to reveal himself to his people. This, I don't know, remember, it's a small, smaller child, and so he puts his eyes in his eyes, mouth in his mouth, hands in his hands, wherever those are, but I mean, he's, he's a full-grown man. And so while he's doing this, he's just crouched down, and he's just crying out for God to reveal himself. It's a desperate prayer. It's a position of desperate prayer, but it is also up close and intimate to the one who is being prayed for. I know it sounds weird, but just bear with me a moment. There have been times when people have come to me for prayer, and you just see it in their eyes, the anguish, and they don't know what to do, and it's an absolutely impossible situation, And there's those times I'll just grab them, I'll put my my head against their head, and I'll just get as close as I can to them, and then just together we're just going to cry out to the Lord. I don't think it's anything more than that. I think it's a man seeing a situation that looks absolutely impossible, and he's desperate, and he just gets right up with the kid, and he's just like, Lord, I don't want this kid to stay dead. Can you please do something? And it says, there's a semicolon, which means there's a pause. It says, as he's crying out to the Lord, it says, the flesh of the child waxed warm, began to warm up. God answered. But they're not out of the woods yet, because he's still not responding. Verse 35, so then he returned. Literally, it means he went down from the bed. He doesn't leave the chambers. And then he walks in his house back and forth. He paces back and forth for a bit. And then he climbs back up on the bed, and he does it again. This time it says the child sneezed seven times because seven's the number of perfections, so it was a perfect sneeze. I don't know. I like looked up all sorts of stuff and I just gave up. The idea of the word sneeze here, it, it describes a faint sneeze, almost like the idea of someone stirring. Almost like a faint kind of a just breath coming out of the nostrils. Seven breaths came out. And then. The child opened his eyes. God raised him from the dead. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, though, sometimes you read this and you think to yourself, okay, God, what was so special about this kid? What was so special about this family? What about all the prayers we prayed? I don't know why God brought this child back to life, but He does not bring others when we pray. I don't know why, I think it's Acts 12 where it says that Jesus allowed James to be beheaded, but then that very week He sent angels to come and let Peter out of jail. Like, you know, I wonder if James was up in heaven going, where was that the week ago? I also wonder if Jesus turned to him and is like, you said you wanted to drink the cup that I was going to drink. You, that's your choice. I don't know why. God rescues some, though the Scriptures teach, because He knows their rescue will impact people for eternity the most. And then God allows some to die because He knows that will impact people for eternity the most. And so when When God doesn't rescue someone we love, I don't think God just expects us to sit here and be okay with it because, well, he's God and we're not. He knows and we don't. I mean, you could tell people that, but it it feels really callous, and that's because it is. And God is never callous like that in the Scripture. Even when Job is just going through it, he's lost everything, and he is complaining to God, and he's frustrated because he doesn't understand what God's doing, even then when God comes onto the scene, Look at how gracious he is with Job. Like he comes to his friends and he's like, "You three, you're so bad. And you're in so much trouble right now because you have accused a righteous man of things that he didn't do." There's no callousness with God. He challenges Job, but then he lovingly restores him. There's no such callousness with our Lord. You see, God doesn't just want us to sit there and be okay with it because, well, He's God and we're not. God wants us to run to Him with our pain so that we can understand better how much He loves everyone, not just us and our loved one. So that we can better understand why He is willing to spend our lives or the lives of those we love to reach others. Look at Romans 8 with me real quick. Romans 8, 35, Paul asks an important question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Good question. Who can ever separate me from God's love working in my life, God's love for me? Who can separate us from that? Who can rip that away from us that it's not true for us? That God loves me? That God's love is working for me? And he brings out some possible things. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, peril, or even sword? He goes, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter." I love Paul's response. He goes, nay. Not a single one of those things has the ability to rip me from God's love. None of them do. Nay. In all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death. No, in all those things, we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Why? Why? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note in those five verses the three mentions of love. Love is so very important for us to understand this truth because being victorious when you're going through suffering is all about understanding that the Father's love and Christ's love stand sure in every circumstance. None of those sufferings can be separated from the truth that God loves us. And therefore, none of those circumstances occur outside of the realm of His love for us. And so when I understand his love for me, then I also realize that that same love is for everyone else. And therefore, for his sake, he is willing to spend our lives or the lives of our loved ones. If it means that love can be shown to someone else, and they can be brought near into that love as well. So on the basis of that inseparable love, you and I can run to him, trusting that He's working all these difficult things together, not just for my good, but for the good of all of those that He loves. And so if you're here tonight and you've gone through the pain of loss, know that suffering has not separated you from God's love. That God allowed it is evidence of His love, because to let it happen means that He is working His purposes in the world to bring more people closer to Him. Well, in this case, in 2 Kings 4, God rescues the child. And so Elijah tells Gehazi to tell the woman the wonderful news. In verse 36, it says, And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. And so he called her, and when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up your son. Carry, hold. He's yours again. <laughs> He's all yours. And then she went in and she fell at Elisha's feet. She bowed herself to the ground and took up her son. And went out. She bows down, the word means to prostrate yourself in respect or honor. But like I said, she's a tough cookie. She doesn't really express a lot more of emotion. She makes no verbal statement of thanks. I almost wonder if she kinda of looked at him and went and then walked off with her kid. <laughs> you know? It's right. <laughs> and to be a fair. I'm not fully convinced she actually gives her pain to the Lord yet because her story is not over. We'll meet her again later on in 2 Kings when another crisis hits her life. Verse 38, we've got a couple smaller miracles here. Well, not smaller miracles, smaller sections of miracles to finish out the chapter. It says in verse 38 And Elisha came again to Gilgal. Gilgal was another school location near Jericho. And it says there was a dearth, a, a famine in the land at that time. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that there was a seven-year famine that was God's judgment upon Israel. And so he comes to Gilgal. There was a, There's a famine in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And they were sitting there being instructed by him. And while he's teaching, he says to his servant, he says, "...dinner time's coming soon. Set on the great pot and boil." "...sieve means to boil pottage for the sons of the prophets." Uh, cook a meal for the students. Pottage is a thick vegetable soup or stew. It's usually made with beans or gourds to give it kind of that texture and stuff. And so one of the people, the cooks, and one of the, the servants, they went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine Nobody grew anything. It was just stuff growing in the wild. And he gathered from it wild gourds, his entire lap full. And he came and he shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. They didn't recognize that they were wild gourds. Now, we don't know for sure what this means by wild gourd, but there is a famous plant called a a colosynth in Israel. It's a cucumber-like fruit that was bitter when you ate it. It's nasty. And if you consume too much of it, it could kill you. It was poisonous. So this poor guy, he's got an entire sash full. He's got his sash, and he's he's got them all in there, and he's coming home, I found a bunch of food in the famine. Slices them up, dumps them into the pot and the stew, and no one realized what they were until they started eating. Verse 40, so they poured out for the men to eat. They start dispensing the soup, and it came to pass as they were eating of the pottage that they cried out and said, Oh, thou man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat thereof. <laughs> That's a bit dramatic. A few sips is not going to hurt anybody, but it wasn't edible, so I mean, it's a bummer. I don't think it's a mistake, though, that the same word is used for something trivial like this when compared to the loss of a child. Again, the Bible's very human because we say things like that at times. I had a situation recently when me and Rev were talking, and, and I just got real discouraged. And I could have just said, there's death in the pot. There's no, no one's dying. Everybody's fine. But we can get that way, can't we? Oh, here's the cool part. Trivial things are important to God, too. Look at verse 41. But he, Elisha, said, well, then bring meal, bring grain. And so when he brought the grain, it says he cast it into the pot, and he said, pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Everything was fixed. Now, the fact that there's grain in the house means they're not going to starve. It's just going to take time to bake the grain. But Elisha says, God cares even about this. Now, he says, he doesn't say, bring out the magical grain that fixes poisoned food. No, this wasn't like a special stash when the lunch guy had an oopsie. It was normal, nourishing food, something they could eat. And Elijah throws it in there, trusting that God will make the entire thing something that can be edible. And God does. There's a lesson here. God is not limited by the mistakes other people make that affect you. He's not limited by that. I think too often we find ourselves in difficult circumstances because someone else doesn't care or someone else did something wrong or someone else on purpose did something against us and then we despair. There's death in the pot. No, there's not death in the pot because God can put sustenance into something that seems useless. And he can change the contents of the pot so that we will make it through to the other side. Do you believe he can do that? Verse 42 and there came a man from Baal Shalisha, it's a city west of Gilgal, not far from Bethel. And he brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. The first fruits, remember, are supposed to be brought to the priests and the Levites to provide for them. But remember, they had forsaken their ministry of teaching and helping the people worship. And so those who were faithful to the Lord, they said, well, where do we bring our first fruits? Well, many of them, they would obey the Lord by bringing them to support the prophets who had taken up that job of teaching the people. And so this guy, he brings, it says, 20 loaves of barley and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. It's not corn in the husk. It means that all the bread and the corn, the word husk here means a sack or a bread bag. So he brought all this stuff in one bag. Wonderful donation. Excellent thing. But if it could all be carried in one bag by one man, then no matter how strong that dude is, this would not be enough food to feed more than a few families at the school. But Elijah, note he has other thoughts. When he sees it, he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. Famine's been rough. Feed everybody with this, Gehazi. Verse 43, his servitor, his assistant, this is Gehazi, he says, What? I love that. (laughs) What? What? I have had that response to the Lord. I'll get a phone call, or I'll, you know, Tom will come in, he'll tell me about something that's going on, and he'll I'll close the door, or I'll put the phone down, and I'll, I'll just look. I'll sit in my desk, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? I have no clue. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means, what? Set this before 100 men? A person doesn't need to be good at math to know this would not feed 100 people. But, you know, this reminds me of another time when someone told their assistants to, to take the food that was in their hands and go feed the people. Remember Jesus? He said, Master, send the crowds away. It's getting late, and they're hungry. Send them home so they can go eat. And he goes, no, you guys feed them. <laughs> they might, what? Bible <laughs> said the same thing. You, want, you, you, know, you, you know, you want us to go buy enough food? For, you know, a hundred dinner. I mean, they're just... Jesus says, what do you got? Five holes and two fish. That's that not enough? Jesus prays and says, go feed them. You know, Jesus, when he did that, wasn't doing anything new. In fact, he was reminding the people of Israel something God had already done for them, something we would do well to remember that God is not limited by our seeming limitations. And so it says, Elijah said again, give the people that they may eat but then he explains for thus says the lord they shall eat and shall leave thereof in other words they'll be left they'll have leftovers this time elijah explains gehazi you're not the one responsible to feed them the lord's going to feed them and they'll be leftovers by the way and so he said it before them and they did eat and they were leftovers according to the word of the lord I am glad that Gehazi and the disciples obeyed for all of their questions because it means there's hope for me. (laughs) It means that God can still use me because in both cases, it happened exactly as the Lord said it would because the Lord is the Lord. Do you believe that? Or do you see your situations through your own limitations? God wants to work not just in big situations. He wants to work in your life, my life. One of the things I pray for our church as every day I pray, God, show us what is the power of your resurrection. And by that I mean show us that your resurrection power is available to us. It's directed towards us. And my prayer for you guys each day is, Lord, if, if somebody's going through a marriage problem, parenting problem, financial problem, emotional problem, you know, whatever the problem might be, that they will look to you first knowing that your resurrection power is available to them, that there is no limit to what God can do, so that none of us miss out on how God wants to bless us because we're being stubborn in our own understandings. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we're so grateful that You love us immensely, that You speak in that chapter of Romans 8 just about the very difficult things that we could go through, and yet none of those things separate us from Your love. Your love is is the the chief element in the midst of all those verses. So, Lord, we want to be those who, whether our, our situations Maybe trivial, but it feels like there's death in the pot. Or maybe, Lord, it's a situation where we just we see limitations, our own limitations, others' limitations. Or maybe, Lord, it's a situation of deep anguish where we just, we just don't know what to do. Maybe you answered no when we prayed for you to rescue somebody that we love. Lord, we recognize that in all those situations you love us and that you care and you want to work in our lives. So, Lord, for anyone this evening whose curtain maybe even they've erected that wall in their heart where they've never given you that pain, they've never run to your love with that pain, Lord, I pray no one would leave tonight without doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.